Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10. Actually, we're going to cheat. We're going to begin in John chapter 9, the very end. You know, I was sitting down there this morning and thinking, it is a privilege to have studied a text of Scripture like John chapter 10 this week and then sit through this song service, fully meditating on how the songs chosen today are just so adequate to begin to unpack the truths of John chapter 10. I wish you all could, and hopefully you came prepared to hear from John chapter 10. Uh, Pastor Mike last week uh, began unpacking this passage, but from the Old Testament perspective, Jason last week read this passage, so our minds have been meditating on it for a little bit. And so I want to begin by giving you a little bit of structure. It's probably not the best way to start a sermon, certainly not the most riveting way. But this is a well-known passage, and yet it can be rather confusing if you read through it. We have a parable. We have several figures. Jesus seems to change figures a little bit. So is he the door? Is he the shepherd? Who are the sheep? Who are the thieves and the robbers? And I think it's helpful that if we just look at the structure a little bit and the context in which the structure exists, we'll take some truths home this morning that I believe Jesus intends for us. So let's pray, and then we'll begin looking at our passage this morning. Our Father, we're so thankful for the truths that were sung in song that were played on the piano so well. And Father, we confess that this week there have been distractions in our lives. There have been uh, trials. There have been heartaches. There have been disappointments. Maybe even news this week that we haven't shared with anybody else. That, oh, Father, causes us to question Is Jesus really the good shepherd? Father, there certainly are those in this world, there were in Jesus' time, there were before Jesus' time, there certainly are now those who claim some spiritual or mystical truth, even claim in some way the name of Jesus, and yet... Jesus gives us a great warning about them in this passage. Some of us have been fleeced by those kind of false shepherds. Some of us are in desperate need of the reminder this morning that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so we pray that you would help us unpack these truths, that they would take place in our heart, and that As the psalmist says, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We know Jesus is good, and he's our good shepherd. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're in John chapter 9. Our outline will follow the structure of this passage, and so I want to set up the structure a little bit. It begins with a well-known metaphor, which uh, goes through uh, verse Six and our exegesis will begin formally, I suppose, in verse 7 with Jesus' explanation. So he has four I am statements. If you were to peruse through this, you would have noticed last week, twice he says, I am the, the door. And then he says, I am twice the good shepherd. And we typically think of this passage and we say, okay, he's the good shepherd. But we often forget and aren't quite sure how the door figure plays into this. And that we'll see critically from the context here in John chapter 9, and as we've been studying. It's also important to note uh, that this parable, because of its context, is directed at someone, primarily, especially the first figure. Uh, We get reacquainted with these individuals in verse 40 of John chapter 9. Look at that with me. Those of the Pharisees... That's our audience. Who were with him heard these things and said to Jesus, 
We are not blind too, are we? Remember? This whole chapter, Jesus heals the blind man. And now Jesus uh, uh, and the Pharisees are dialoguing about the blind man. And he basically says, you, you are the blind. They're so blind they can't even see that Jesus is saying, you are the blind ones. And so they say, well, we're not blind, are we? In verse 41, Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, they totally miss what Jesus is trying to say. And this, my friends, is the context. This is the audience, especially wherewith the first figure, Jesus, I am the door, is being laid. In fact, Jesus begins the dialogue with this very audience, the, the Pharisees. He, he begins it clear back in chapter 7, but we won't go that far back. We could go to chapter 8 where Jesus declares himself the living water and the light of the world having the ability to give eternal life. The Pharisees have been contending with him over this healing of the blind man episode in chapter 9, and now we see that this whole passage ironically falls on deaf ears in verse 6, in John chapter, 6, John chapter 10, verse 6. These religious men were the blind leading the blind, and they could not even hear the voice of their creator. John summarizes our passage with this audience in mind. Look at verse 19 of John chapter 10. He says there, John says, a division occurred again among the Jews, with the Pharisees being at the forefront because of these words, the words which we'll unpack this morning. And many of them were saying, he has a demon and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of a one demon possessed, a demon cannot open up the mind of the eyes of the blind. And truly, this summary is not a very satisfying one, is it? That people could hear Jesus unpacking the fact that he is the good shepherd, and yet they still don't get it. In fact, they call him a demon-possessed one. Do you believe that? The creator of all the world. Their Messiah. You're so full of sin, you're demon-possessed. You're so full of sin, you're crazy. And so, let's read the parable and first identify the religious leaders that Jesus is addressing. In verse number one, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief, and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus, John says then in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which, which he had been saying to them. So Jesus gives us a parable. He gives more formally or more accurately a parable to the very blind that he's discussing, he's talking about. And even with Jesus's uh, even without reading Jesus' explanation, which is later on in verse 7 and following, we have a good idea who Jesus is talking about in verses 1 through 5, don't we? Who are the robbers? Who are the thieves? And so, indeed, Jesus doesn't identify anyone in his explanation in this parable except for himself. And that can be instructive for us today, I think, because by implication, perhaps everyone has a role to play in this parable and in Jesus' unpacking of it. And so one of the questions I have for us this morning is what role are you playing in this parable? My task for you this morning is to outline the role Jesus plays. And we're going to do that through, again, again, the structure, through his four I am statements. Twice he says, I am the door, and twice he says, I am the good shepherd. And so here is a simple outline following that structure. First of all, in verses 8 and in part of verse 10, Jesus, as the door, guards. He's the guardian. He's the guardian of the sheep. 
Secondly, Jesus as the door grants. He grants something. He grants life. That's in verses 9. We also see that in verse 10. So Jesus as door guards the sheep and grants eternal life. And then thirdly, Jesus as shepherd gives his life for us. And we see that unfolding in verses 11 through 13. And then Jesus as shepherd glorifies the Father through us in verses 14 through 18. So maybe some mock devices here. We have letters or words that all start with G. Jesus guards, he grants life, he gives his life, and he glorifies the Father. These are words that begin with G to describe the good shepherd. So we can kind of remember it that way a little bit as we unpack this. And so in light of the blatantly false shepherds of Jesus' day, Jesus is making the claim that he is the way and the shepherd to God, the only one. And only Jesus is worth following because he guards, he grants life, he gives his life for the sheep, and he glorifies, and only he can glorify the Father through us. So we don't have time this morning to demonstrate the historical usage of this term shepherd, as we're looking at the good shepherd and as the door. But this word in the Old Testament was used generically, or maybe we could say even secularly, as a leader or a ruler. It was used outside of Old Testament context uh, in, in Israel's contemporary uh, nations, but it was also used inside in a secular world, in a secular word, or secular fashion, I should say. So shepherd could be, we could use it as a, as a, as a governor or as a leader. It's not limited, for instance, to the priest role. It's used of David, for instance. Um, and so we have four reasons this morning, four reasons to follow Jesus as leader, as shepherd. And uh, we're going to unpack those. So the first one, Jesus is the door. Okay, so that's kind of the dry structural part. All right, we got that out of the way. Uh, that could be helpful for us this morning as Jesus kind of starts to unpack what he means by I am the door. I mean, look at verse 1. He says, uh, he who does not enter by the door. I mean, that's the, that's the first major thing that he brings up. The person who's not entering by the door and the door. And so then Jesus in verse 8 says, I am the door. And uh, the, the audience here, Jesus' audience as the Pharisees, the religious leaders, helps us understand why it's so important that Jesus is the door. What's, what's Jesus getting at? I am the door. Well, he's the, he's the guardian for the sheep in light of the Pharisees. Um, and so he stands in contrast to and indeed is opposing those who are the religious oppressor, oppressors, the Pharisees, people who, treat, who were treating other people like thieves and robbers. Consider the Pharisees' treatment of the man born blind. Think about that. Let's go to verse uh, 30 in, in chapter 9. Actually, let's go to verse 22. Right? Let's go to verse 22 of chapter 9. This is the blind man's parents. His parents said that because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They, he said this, what did they say? Verse 21, that they don't know who it is that opened up his son's eyes. They don't know. They knew clear well who it was. His son told them. And yet they say in verse 22, we don't know it. Why? Because they were afraid to be put out. They were afraid to be excommunicated from the Jewish community. So uh, that's a pretty, pretty big statement, pretty big fear. And that's exactly what happened in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Um, the man answered the Pharisees and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, he has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person, uh, that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
So this is clearly a God thing. And I don't think we have to argue this point long to open up someone's born, uh, blind eyes, right? But then in verse 34, what? They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us? So what do they do to the man born blind? They put him out. They excommunicated. The fears, right? So it had gone around. It was well known that if you believe in this, this man, Jesus, you're going to be out of here. You're not going to belong any longer. This is spiritual robbery, isn't it? That unpacks this word thief and robber coming in some other way. And so the reader is anticipating Jesus as shepherd, but he first identifies himself as the door. Jesus' parable is directed at spiritual thieves and robbers, and consequently those oppressed and victimized by them. Jesus stands in direct contrast to these spiritual abusers, and he wants those who are underneath the callous weight of their domination to know that they are safe and secure behind the door, not in front of it, which Jesus will say in a little bit. Jesus isn't like any, is unlike any other religious leader yesterday or today. Even those whose leadership has been in his name, and we know, right? We've, we've flipped on the TV. We've, walk in, we've walked past a church. We've gone through a sidewalk, and we've heard someone say something in Jesus' name, and we know Jesus would never say it like that. Remember the, the 80s and the 90s where there was God hates dot, 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 and you could fill in the blank. There were several of them, right? God hates dot, dot, dot. Well, there may be a little bit of truth in some of that statement, but it is not at all the way Jesus would do things or the way Jesus did things, is it? And so some of us, we have people, maybe even in our past pastors or elders or other churches that have essentially borne the realities of the Pharisees and the oppressors saying things in Jesus' name but not doing them at all his way and clearly missing the truth and the point. And so for us today, Jesus is the guard and Jesus never, ever fails. He will always guard the truth and he will always do things the right way. And so the audience kind of reveals the necessity for Jesus to guard his church, for Jesus to guard his Flock. Maybe we should say it that way since we're out not quite in the church age yet in this parable. Right. But Jesus to guard his sheep. And the audience shows us that. The adversaries reveal that there's a need for this guardian. Um, you know, consider the first phrase, the very first phrase of verse 1. John says, excuse me, Jesus says here, truly, truly, I say, to you. You know, that statement is never an introductory statement of a new idea in John's gospel. Up until this point, it has always, it has always said, hey, look, there's something back here that I was trying to teach you. Are, you're not getting it. Get it, get it now. It's amen, amen. It's amen, amen. Get it, get it now. Right? Truly, truly, I'm saying to you, you need to get this. Jesus is trying to say, you know, I'm not just some other religious peddler. I'm not just someone trying to sell some ideas. I'm not just going door to door trying to get you to buy my wares. You know, you can go to, to any city, any large city. You can walk down the sidewalk and maybe in a little bit different kind of an area of the city, there's a guy with a table. And he's got this cool, nifty gizmo that just rolls out all these watches. And whoa, man, they're Rolexes, and they're only 20 bucks. They tell time like a Rolex. They look like they're gold like a Rolex. But we all know they're Folexes, right? They're not Rolexes, they're Folexes. As soon as the police officer starts walking down the corner, what happens? That, that table becomes really portable, and the watches roll back up in that nifty case, and he's out. 
Jesus isn't just some other peddler of truth, of a truth out there. Jesus is the truth. He is the door. He is the way. And so Jesus wants us to know that he's not to be compared with these. In fact, he opposes these kind of individuals. And it would be a tragedy to go through this text and not to ask these questions. Do you, have you, entered by Jesus, the thief and the robber? He enters what? He enters some other way, but he will not go before Jesus and through Jesus. So what are you trusting in this morning for your eternal life? I trust most of you have entered by the door, by Jesus, confessing your sins and placing your faith in him and him alone. But then, look at verse 2. The sheep, what do they do? They don't just enter by the, by the door, but they hear his voice. In fact, you could read this passage and we'd see that as an emphasis. Pastor Mike even mentioned that last week. And if Jesus is the only way, are you listening to him? And can I say only him? Or are there some other masters in your life? Are there some other competing voices in your life? You can turn on any device and have a loud competing voice for truth, for what we must do. The reality is what? Jesus is the door. Don't make this, or for some of you who are a little more old-fashioned, it's larger and it's mounted on the wall. Don't make that or people on that, or anything else, a way. Jesus is the way. So do you know Jesus? Look at verse 4. Not only do they hear him, but they know his voice. If you're listening to Jesus, are you listening to all of what he says? Not just picking and choosing what's good for you? If you are tragically and constantly picking and choosing what you want to hear from Jesus, we need to go back to step number one. Have you actually gone through Jesus as the door? If you are picking and choosing what you want to hear of Jesus and know about him, we need to go back and ask the question, have I really gone through the door, Jesus? Because if I am, if I do, I'm going to follow him. Not only do they know his voice, verse 4, but they what? They follow him. Does your living, living demonstrate that you are Christ? follower. So we've seen the audience and uh, the adversaries show a need or demonstrate a need for Jesus to be the guardian, the door. But we also see that there's a, there's a difference in their ambition. And this is why Jesus needs to be the guardian, the door of the sheep. Um, you know, the, the ambition is pretty evident, isn't it? Jesus describes them this way in verse 1. They are, their, their motives are already apparent. He is a, the false shepherds here are a thief and a robber. That, that word thief is where we get klepto from, kleptomaniac. It's the Greek, klepto. And, and so someone who wants to steal and steal, steal, steal and has no regard for anybody else, just themselves. That word robber really has the, 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 the if, if we need to separate the two, uh, it has really the, the idea of gaining by force or violence. And so there is great motive here on the part of false shepherds to amass to themselves. No, that's the, that's the whole human condition, right? Pride, greed, covetousness, jealousy to amass. And so... And so those who are outside of the door, those who do not enter the sheepfold by the door, they're no, they're no different. They want everything just for themselves. In fact, they're going to especially use the spiritual realities of the world to get what they want. That's self-glory. John unpacks this a little bit, and I think it's helpful. So turn to John chapter 12. And I would apologize for going all over the place, but you know what? We like the Bible, so I ain't going to do it. So John chapter 12, we see here 
Uh, let's just gain a little context. Verse 37, we see here how the religious are amassing to themselves and they're missing the point. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, though Jesus healed the blind man and, 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 up until John chapter 12, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he, hurt, he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be convert, converted, and I healed them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Notice, he saw God's glory and spoke of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, <coughs> many even of the rulers, maybe even the Pharisees, we could even necessarily say the shepherds believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, those who typify the false shepherds that, John, that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, because of these Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. There it is again. There's that excommunication factor. And it's a real thing. Look at verse 43. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You know, that's, that's true for any shepherd that gets up, under shepherd that gets up and has an opportunity to preach God's word. You can develop a sermon for the approval of man or you can develop a sermon for the approval of God. There's certain ways to do that and sticking with the text is one of them. Making application as the text makes it is one of them illustrating so that we can get to our heart and to our mind is another way. But we could just come up here and we could just tell stories and make everyone feel good about themselves and we would be doing nothing different than what a false shepherd does in John chapter 12. So this couldn't be more in, contact, in contrast with the motivation. Look at verse 10 of John chapter 10. We're back in John chapter 10 now. Thank you. Good turn flipping, uh, page flipping. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. It's going to be further different than what Jesus did. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. The ambition of the good shepherd is completely altogether different than the ambition of those false shepherds. And so Jesus is the guardian. He's the door. He's the guardian of the sheep. And the contrast between the Pharisees who kicked the once blind man out, who had the fear factor of excommunication with all those who may, who may uh, confess Jesus, the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus who gave the same blind man his sight, couldn't it be more striking, could it? Instead of celebrating the man's restoration of life in his eyes and Jesus as the giver of life, what do they do? They cast out the blind, once blind man, and seek to slaughter and destroy by their underhanded false shepherding the good shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep. These are thieves and robbers of God's glory indeed, aren't they? And so now we have an opportunity here to focus on the second I am statement. The second statement, and that is the door grants, uh, the, the second I am the door statement. The door grants life to us. And we see that in verse 9 and verse 10. So not only does he guard us, but he grants life to us. This is why it's so important, folks, that those who are, uh, if we're going to take some, if we go back to verses 1 through 5 and we, we go through the metaphor and if we have to identify people, and, and here I'm trying to stick to exactly how Jesus is explaining it because why would we want to explain the metaphor any other way than Jesus does, right? But if we have to go through and say, okay, there are false shepherds, those are thieves and robbers in verse 1, and then there are those who enter by the door to the sheep, to the, to the sheep. well, 
If, if we have to identify under-shepherds there, outside of Jesus, which is fine, people do that, we have to understand that, that, that Jesus is the door that grants life. And you can't have a true shepherd or a shepherd, an under-shepherd, a pastor, if you will, let's just put it in our language, you can't have a pastor giving truth about God's word and counseling people and sitting down with people as their hearts are breaking, as they've lost babies, as they've lost loved ones, as, as, as their world is crumbling and they don't have a job and they don't have any money left, and as people are hurting them. You can't sit down and be completely dead spiritually and offer people hope. You can't do it. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the door. I am the one who grants life. And you as a shepherd, you as a discipler, let's put it in our context, our language, you as a discipler, someone who's going to lead someone else has to be alive himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Has to be. Must be. If there's any hope for anyone in all the world, you must be born again. And you must know Jesus. You must have walked through that door in order to be able to help people. You want to help people, you must first help yourself by confessing that Jesus is Lord and accessing his strength, his life, what he offers to you and to me. That's why John 14 says, Jesus says to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. Jesus also says, um, I'm the door. I'm the door. Then he says what in verse 10? Excuse me. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And there's a compassion in that statement, isn't there? Think about it. Remember, who, who, who's the context? Who's the, who's the primary audience? Granted, we're benefiting, certainly. But who's the primary audience? It's the Pharisee he's talking to. Do you see the great compassion that Jesus has for those who constantly are rejecting him? He could have called down a whole host of army of angels and wiped out every single last heretic of a Pharisee, every last false shepherd. But he doesn't do that, does he? Because he didn't come this time to judge. He came to what? To save and to seek those who are lost. And guess who's, who needs salvation and who's lost? Those Pharisees those false shepherds, the ones who thought they had it all together, who were abusing people just to get their own glory. And so, wow, not only do we see the caution that I'm the door and you've got to enter through me, don't try to help other people unless, you're, unless you've been, been helped yourself by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the caution, but we also see the compassion of Jesus to the Pharisee. That he's willing to say graciously, come through me, the door, the way. Then we also see the capability of Jesus in verse 10. Verse 9, I should say. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be, he'll be saved. Jesus has great capability. God did not send his son into the world to judge, right? We said that. But to, but to save those who could be saved through him. So have you trusted in the great capability of Jesus? to save you like the good shepherd of psalm 23 23 excuse me he will lead you and verse 9 look at verse 9 will allow you to go in and out of pasture it kind of sounds a lot of like psalm 23 there doesn't it and he will lead you verse 10 so that you may have see it life and may have it what abundantly. Jesus began his explanation of the shepherd-thief metaphor in an unanticipated way. He, he made much of the door. I am the door. Because he guards his sheep. He grants life to the sheep. He is the door. And in the ancient world, uh, shepherds would often take their sheep on long journeys just to find some grass, some pasture land that was, that was growing. Dry, doesn't grow as fast. So sometimes you could be quite a ways from home. And, and there were often times uh, in these long journeys that would, would take several days and several nights 
Uh, there would be greatest danger at night, and, and so there would be a stone wall that would, that would be enclosing or encasing, if you will, the sheep. And obviously, there would be a little portion of that wall that would be missing. That was the door. That was the gate. That was the way for the sheep to get in and to, to, and to only have one way for protection. And so oftentimes, the shepherd, if he was on a journey with them, he would, he would literally lay as the door in between the sheep and the access. And so any prey, any predator was before the sheep, was before the door and not gaining access. And so... Uh, it's in this vein that I think it could be helpful to understand that the door metaphor and the shepherd metaphor aren't altogether different. Jesus is using them in similar ways to communicate specific things. And so sometimes we say, okay, well, is Jesus the door or is he the shepherd? I, I, I've, I've got to have a clean picture here in my metaphor, right? Don't, don't mix metaphors on me. I do that all the time. Mixed metaphors. I'm the king of that. Well, guess what? If Jesus, the king of the universe, wants to mix metaphors, you just let him. And that's kind of what he's doing here. But it's all together, it's all together makes sense. It, it, it has a flow to it. And so now we turn from Jesus as the door to Jesus making two statements about himself being the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd because, number, number one, um, he gives life for us. He gives life for us. Let's read verses 11 through 13. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is, the, who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus gives his life for the sheep. He's sacrificial in doing that. It's clear here. One man puts it this way, and I thought this was helpful. He says that he is the good shepherd has meant much to every generation of Christians. It makes an instant appeal to the depths of our being. Even though many of us are city dwellers, I'd count myself in that regard, or suburban dwellers maybe, and have never seen a shepherd in our lives, I don't think I ever have, except for Pastor Kent dressed up in junior church. And that was an interesting sight. And I kept on walking down the hall. But the thought of care for the sheep that is involved in this title is plain enough. We should notice that while a shepherd does many things for his flock, when Jesus speaks of himself in his capacity as good shepherd, he immediately goes on and says what? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is sacrificial for the sheep. This isn't just sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. This is a substitutionary sacrifice. The Old Testament anticipates this great sacrifice. In Isaiah 53, right? Surely he's, he, he himself will, will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Yet we, est we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, what? For our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The chastisement of our, uh, the chastising for our well-being was upon him. In the Nazbe, that's how it goes. Galatians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. But Paul unpacks this. In the New Testament as well, Christ redeemed for the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Romans chapter 5 is another great one. We won't go there this morning. But Jesus sacrifices for us. This is why Jesus' contrast, his shepherding is so different than the false shepherds, the thieves and the robbers. But look, he goes on to contrast, not just with thieves and robbers, but he goes on to contrast with verse 12, the hired hand. Someone who doesn't have as much, who doesn't have as much care in the game. Jesus is not motivated by personal gain. You know, when you pay someone to do work, you pay someone to do work. They're not going to go, usually they're not going to go well, well above and beyond, and they're certainly probably not going to give their life intentionally. 
Why? Because what's the point of getting paid if you're going to give your life? Not much point there. And so that's why we're very thankful for those who do have jobs that are very dangerous, like police officers and those who are in the military that, that do their work at the potential cost of. But even they do their work not anticipating getting up in the morning and what? Giving their life. If they did, they'd probably not go that morning. That's just how it works. But that's not true at all for Jesus. Jesus went to his job as shepherd because he is the shepherd and he gave his life. He was sacrificial. It was his purpose. That's what his shepherding entails every time for all of eternity that he would give his life for the sheep. That's our good shepherd. That's why we gain so much comfort in Jesus the good shepherd. And so lastly, we've alluded to this a bit last week and today, but it's a good reminder that when Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, his claim is unmistakable. Because this, this figure, even though we mentioned that it can be a secular term, this, this term shepherd, it also has full and rich Old Testament imagery. We enjoy Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. We, look at, we looked at, I believe, last week, Isaiah chapter 40, that God will tend his flock like a shepherd. And in his arms, he'll, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead the nursing ewe. In Ezekiel 34, where Pastor Mike was last week, God will search for his sheep, seeking them out. There's rich there's rich truth in the fact that God is our shepherd. And so when Jesus says, you, 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 and you, you are false shepherds, you are thieves and robbers. I, I am the good shepherd. He's making a point, a point that to an Old Testament hearer is very clear. I am God. And so, not only is Jesus the good shepherd who gives his life for us, but he is the good shepherd that glorifies the Father through us. Let's just briefly look at this this morning, verse 14. Again, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me much different than a thief or robber, than a false shepherd. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. No other shepherd can do this. No other shepherd can lay down my life and then take my life back up again. But Jesus, the good shepherd, can. Oh, and by the way, verse 18, no one can ever take his life from him, but he lays it down willingly, intentionally, as we already said, of his own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus, the good shepherd, glorifies the Father through us. And he glorifies the Father. First of all, we see this in, in our relationships. See that there's no relationship with the thief and the robber. In fact, typically, thieves and robbers don't rob, typically, you know, in any extent, don't rob people that they know. Sometimes, maybe, someone does, but that's, that's unheard of, usually. Um, at least people that are living with them that they love and care about, or they wouldn't love and care about them. But Jesus demonstrates here that he's the good shepherd in verse 14. I know my own, and my own know me. He has knowledge of us. And uh, I'd like to just quickly read what one pastor said about uh, this, because I think it just it was very helpful. So Jesus has knowledge of us as the good shepherd, and there's a way that his knowledge of us will help us to glorify God. And, and the pastor says this, he says, 
And he knew what your name would be, speaking of the fact that he knows us. And there would be no other name you were going to have. And he knows the names of all his sheep, and he knows their nature intimately. He knows your genealogy. He knows what runs in your gene pool. He knows, for instance, whether or not your family history indicates that you'll have diabetes at age 43. Getting real specific there. He knows your genetic characteristics, all the particulars of your health, your private development. He knows everything that happened to you when you were a child that has affected your personality. He knows the entirety of your environment and all that contributed to what you are today. He knows that, you were, that you're weak or feeble, that you're a person given to nervousness or anxiety. He knows when you're frightened. He knows your tendency perhaps to presumption. He knows those who are brave or those who are sick or those who are just plain sorry. He knows those who are worried or those who are wounded or those who, are, who constantly fret. He knows every dollar that's in your bank account. He knows the exact condition of your automobile and the house of which you walked out of this morning. He knows everything, every intimate detail of his sheep. And it is that knowledge, that intimate detail, that caring, personal love that ought to prove to you over and over and over again that Jesus is your great shepherd. And so it's fair to say, with that kind of knowledge, God in his divine providence is using the good shepherd to take the good, the bad, the ugly, the painful, the happy. He's taking all that in your life. If Jesus is the good shepherd, he's taking all those things to grow you, to mold you, to make you a vessel that will give God the most glory. You see, we, we love to think about the shepherd image, imagery. We love the fact that Jesus is our good shepherd. But when we're going through the valley of it, and things are painful, and things are rough, and we don't quite understand it, we kind of we tend to leave the shepherd alone, don't we? But you know, the shepherd can even use those things in our life to glorify the God of heaven. And that's why we say that Jesus is the good shepherd because he can glorify the Father through you and through me. Because the same good shepherd that knows you also has an infinite knowledge of who? The Father. Think about that. That's what makes Jesus such a great shepherd. He takes his intimate knowledge of you and his infinite knowledge of the God of heaven to bring about the most glory for him. No one else has access to your heart like Jesus has. And no one else, else has access to the Father like Jesus has. And so trust him as he shepherds you along today and you can't quite figure it out. Why? Painful. Hurting. It's life. We bear those burdens and it hurts. But you know what? The one who inf intimately knows you infinitely knows the Father, so follow his shepherding. Jesus glorifies the Father through fulfilled unity of God's sheep. Lastly, so he, he knows us, he knows the Father, and he's, he's working to unify the sheep. Certainly we can appreciate that within our own church and in the fact that Ephesians 4 says that we have to strive by the Spirit's power to maintain unity. Even, God, even God's people in this dispensation, we need help in that. But I believe there's actually a much greater context here. In fact, I know there is. And that context is Jesus is taking all tribes and tongues and kindreds and nations, and he's calling them to himself. Something that the world longs for, for people of different colors and different cultures and different backgrounds and different social and economic statuses to all be one and to get along. But it's not going to happen. Folks, it will never happen outside of Jesus Christ. 
Only Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus is working to glorify the God by bringing all tribes and tongues and nations together. You know, David Livingston, Livingston he was a, a missionary in the 1800s died in 1873. You know, his grave, if you ever have the opportunity to, to visit Westminster Abbey someday, his gravestone is there in the, in the nave. His heart, you may know this from Sunday school long ago, his heart was buried in Africa where he, where he was a missionary. Uh, but his body was brought back and, and entombed in a grave there in Westminster Abbey. And there, Part of the inscription says, brought by faithful hands over land and sea, here rests David Livingston, missionary, traveler. Goes on to list some other things. Uh, he died in Ulala, I think, Africa. And then it says, for 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize the native races. And then... There's this verse, verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. David Livingston made his whole life about the shepherd's purpose to bring in us, the Gentiles, all underneath one shepherd. And so Jesus glorifies the Father through the unity of the sheep, and he glorifies the Father through the obedience that he has. Uh, we can see that there in verse 18. Uh, Jesus obeys by putting down his life and taking it up again in this commandment he received from the Father. And so, it likewise, is for us to be men and women who are willing to glorify the Father by obeying the commands, the word of God. But in conclusion, I want to at least wrap up by maybe helping with this somewhat simple illustration, but an illustration maybe helpful nonetheless. If one of the marks of being a sheep of the good shepherd is that you hear his voice and he knows yours. Uh, the other day, I was walking my one-and-a-half-year-old I said, well, you want to go for a walk with me? So I took her hand, and we went a few houses down to gather her sisters from a neighborhood's house. And getting to know my daughter, walking and holding her hand, requires me to hunch a bit. She's kind of down here, so it's, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. I take, have to take significantly smaller steps. Sometimes I forget slower steps, and I end up pulling her, pull her little arm off, and so it's a, it's a bit inconvenient, but it's a well-worthy inconvenience. It's not about speed. It's not about comfort. As I walked with her, she was walking and just talking away. This is, she's not even one and a half. She's like one and three months. I don't know. You can ask Charlotte later. She has all the details. All right? <laughs> she's talk, 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 talk. Babble, 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 babble. 90%. Except that she pointed to something, 90%. I have no idea what she's saying. I'm just saying, uh-huh. Sweetie, that's so wonderful just talking back to her like we're having a good old conversation. And you know, what was interesting as a father, I just delighted. I delighted in that fact. I'm sorry. Girl emotions coming. I delighted in the fact that, uh, that she just wanted to communicate with me. It was a wonderful thing. I'll never forget that. And, uh, you know, though I can't communicate at her level, and she can't communicate at mine, it was very clear that she wanted to communicate. And so we just walked and enjoyed each other. So I was thinking about that as studying this passage. You know, Jesus gives us some tools to communicate with us, right? He gives us the word, he gives us the spirit, he gives us prayer, he gives us each other. But, boy, there's kind of a, there's a, there's a bit of a communication gap between my ability and Jesus' ability. But you know, folks, don't forget that is 
You're walking in the highlights of your life, whatever thing is on Facebook, right? Or you're walking through the lows of life, what that one person never puts on Facebook. Jesus is right there. He's the great shepherd, and he's with you. And he delights in being with you. The text tells us that. And so while we cannot walk hand in hand with him, he wants us to know, and here it is in summary, he wants us to know that he guards us by being the door, that he grants life to us, that by being the shepherd, he gives his life for us, which glorifies the Father through us. He wants us to know that he is a shepherd that knows us and that we can know him. And so this morning, we must remember that as we have opportunity to bear this up, regardless of the the pain or the pleasure of life, the sheep hear the good shepherd's voice and they follow him. And only Jesus, only Jesus, I'll say it one more time so you remember, only Jesus is worth following. Father, this morning we're, we're just struck by Jesus' use of simple metaphor and figure. Lord, no doubt there's someone here this morning that, Father, that just has never gone through the door of salvation of Jesus with a group this size. It'd be highly unlikely that that's not the case. So, Lord, we pray that as your word was preached this morning and as Jesus' words sink into our hearts that If there be one here, or two, or maybe even many, that have never trusted in Jesus as the only way, as the the guardian of safety for their soul, as the only way to, to shepherd unto glorifying God, Lord, I pray. I pray that we would not go through this day without without seeing that one come to the great door of salvation and the great shepherd of their soul. Father, no doubt there's many in this room that can look back at a wonderful life, but certainly times where there's been great tragedy and hurt. Maybe there's even some in this room this morning going through those very same things today. And I pray that Jesus, as the guardian and granter of life, as the door, would be a great assurance for them because as we start to unpack next week, we're going to see that once we are a a sheep of the good shepherd, no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. And so though there may be hurtful and hard situations that no doubt produce character as we endure, though there are those things, Lord, help us, give us strength today to walk as faithful sheep hearing the voice of our shepherd. It's there. It never disappears. He never goes away. He is faithful. He is good. He is never missing. He never needs a break. He is faithful. He's always good. And so, Lord, minister to those who need to be hungry for eternal life through the door or need to be hungry for, a, for the presence and power of assurance of the good shepherd in their own life today. And Lord, 
for many of us, help us to be the kind of under-shepherds. We all have, we all are called to disciple. And discipling has a great, has a great, a great correlation between what Jesus is teaching us here and what we find that we must do with the one another's of the New Testament in the, in the church. And so I pray that as we have opportunity to influence, as we're following the, the good shepherd of our souls, and we have opportunity to influence those who are following us, oh Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, keep us from being just a hired hand. Certainly, Lord, keep this flock from thieves and robbers. Lord, help us to be faithful ones. I call in your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.